Welcome to CNUSD EdChat, a podcast for educators and families. I'm Kate Jackson. And I'm Anne-Marie Cortez. And in today's episode, our colleague Ivy Yule Eldridge sat down with two of our favorite authors, Mr. Doug Fisher and Miss Nancy Fry. Yes, we are huge fans of Fisher and Fry. In fact, I think nearly every member of our curriculum and instruction team has been accused of stalking them at one conference or another. I think we even have pictures to prove it. Yes, definitely. Go on Twitter. Ivy spoke with Doug Fisher and Nancy Fry just after they presented to over 700 educators at the California Association of Teachers of English Conference in Costa Mesa, California this past February. My name is Nancy Fry. And I'm Doug Fisher. We are both researchers, writers, teachers, teacher educators, and teacher leaders. We currently work with ninth graders, and so we think a lot about those early adolescents and how their thinking and skills need to develop. Speaking of adolescents, I think that might be our first question that we'll start with today. In one of the publications of Engaging the Adolescent Learner, you speak about a tradition of showing films in the classroom as a means to motivate reluctant readers. But it also comes with the assumption that students are actively learning while they're watching. Then you go on to say that an effective teacher understands that film demands disruption. Can you explain what you mean by this and maybe give us some advice for effectively using video in the classroom? Videos and films are amazing. They're highly visual. They're very engaging. YouTube's one of the greatest teaching resources ever created in the history of the world. Unfortunately, some districts still block it. I hope that's not yours. But if it is, go home, download them because they're amazing resources. So what we were thinking about, Nancy and I were thinking about this, is they're great entertainment. But that's not what school's about. School's really about thinking and processing. So we see the videos or the clips or the films as an input, a possible input to kids so they will do something with that experience, that knowledge they have. So we tried to create a bunch of activities, assignments, and tasks that get kids to pay attention and engage and interact with the film. One of the things I like to do, I like to pick eight or ten vocabulary words that are going to occur in the video clip I'm showing. I put them on strips of paper, cut the strips apart, and as the students watch the video clip, they put the words in order as the video plays. It's really easy. And I get to hear that if the papers aren't moving in the classroom, they're no longer paying attention to me or to the video. So I need to pause, rewind, prompt, cue, discuss. But when the papers are moving, they're listening to that video and they're they're thinking about it, they're moving those words. I know that's super simple. At the end of the video, we ask them to turn to a partner and retell the content of the videos using those eight to 10 vocabulary words. Now they're not just being entertained, they're interacting with the information from it. And I have proof that they were listening, they were thinking, and now that they're using the academic language Mm -hmm. that was suggested by the clip. We think about uh, videos and film as another form of text, and certainly the field has advanced in thinking about that as well. And in the same way that no teacher would simply hand a student a piece of print text and not consider interrupting or disrupting that thinking along the way, we don't think that video or film should be treated that way either. It demands that we stop from time to time, that we pose interesting questions. Another strategy that Doug and I both use as well as other teachers is to have uh, some structured questions that are inserted at different points during the video. And those are the times where we stop the film, we pose that question, 
question. The questions are in front of students, but now those questions are being used to have some table talk, to have some collaborative time. And then we say to students, now based on your conversation, make some notes to yourself about that thinking that was going on right now, and then we'll go back to the video again. By having those short, frequent interspersions of, I don't know if that's a word, interspersion. Um, I might have made that up. Um, but those short, frequent times where students get to think about and discuss what's going on in that film or video before it's over, we're really causing them to develop that habit of thinking critically in all kinds of text, not only print text, but video as well. There's an online system you can use, I forgot the name, uh, online system you can use to import video clips and have it pause and ask either multiple choice questions or free response questions, and the video won't play until the students do that. So I was thinking about whole class use of video when I was doing the vocabulary of words on paper, mm -hmm. but a lot of times we'll put a video um, on like their tablet or on a laptop, and this software program, you can make it stop in certain places where the kids have to do something. They can answer a multiple choice question, they can have an audience, a free response kind of thing, and once they answer, you can get that, all that information as a teacher, and then the video will play some more, and then it'll stop again wherever you tell it to. So let's look at another article called Writing Not Just in the English Class. And this one is close to our hearts because most recently we've been really delving into the expectations of interdisciplinary writing. And we completely agree with what you've written as far as students, it says right here that students need to learn to write like historians, art critics, mathematicians, coaches, scientists, and literary thinkers. For years, content area teachers were not focusing their instructional time on writing. So what advice do you have for teachers who aren't quite sure exactly what it looks like to write like a professional or even how to get started doing writing like this in their classroom? We've been so inspired by the work of uh, other people around disciplinary literacies, especially people like Sam Weinberg in uh, history and Jonathan Osborne in science, in really talking about what those disciplinary literacies look like. And what we found to be really successful is in starting with content area teachers teachers selecting their own text that they use, that they feel close to, and then starting with that analysis, what are the features that are associated with that text, and then what kinds of writing can be done from that text to be able to use it as a mentor text um, in particular. We, but the important part is we let those content area teachers select what those texts are going to be, what are those golden pieces of text for them, and that's our starting point, rather than having us choose the text for them. Writing in a class um, provides a glimpse into thinking. You cannot write something and not be thinking about that something. It is impossible. So when we get students writing, we know they are thinking. And it provides us an opportunity to glimpse inside their brains to see what they understand and don't understand. If they aren't thinking like a historian, they're not going to be able to write like a historian. So if you get them to write like a historian, you know they're thinking like a historian or a mathematician or an art critic or whichever other discipline we're talking about. They need to know what it looks like, what it sounds like in history versus science versus mathematics or art or music or PE or whatever. And they need practice doing that. We've had a little bit of passive experiences of learning and kids learn some generic things. They learn how to take notes because all my teachers have me taking notes. Note taking is not a bad thing, but historians do certain kinds of thinking that we want to apprentice students in. And the best 
evidence that we have that they're doing that kind of thinking is to get them to write so that we can say, oh, they are not looking at sources correctly. Oh, they are not contextualizing, corroborating, which are behaviors of a historian. I need to teach those things because that writing will be the formative assessment to tell us if they are thinking in the discipline. We also spend time working with those content area teachers on figuring out what short kinds of writing that students can and should be doing in their classes. In other words, how do those content area teachers define authentic writing, not simply as a research paper that's due at the end of the semester, but in a daily writing experience. Yes. And many of them will circle around, especially at the beginning, the vocabulary. The vocabulary in their content is so important for uh, their students to be able to learn. And so what we show them are ways in which they can integrate their vocabulary instruction into the short writing prompts, especially the use of things like entrance uh, tickets and exit slips and so on. These are short writings, but teachers can craft those writing prompts such that students have to use the vocabulary that they need. And when those content area teachers start to see the value of the short bursts of writing that are happening daily, they begin to understand how they can use writing in more meaningful ways throughout their semester and not just simply as a, uh, a uh, summative assessment at the end of the semester. That brings us to our final question, which I think is our favorite. And at the end of each interview, we have a segment we call Tomorrow, This Week, This Month. With so many shifts in education and the focus really being on preparing students for the 21st century, what advice could you give to teachers and or families? Meaning, what should they try tomorrow? What should they try this week? And what should they try this month? I'll start on the tomorrow. I think the most important thing we do at teachers in our lessons is make sure that our students know what they're supposed to be learning. And I think sometimes we forget as they get a little older, we make them infer what they're supposed to learn. And I now frame this as a student's rights issue. I believe our students have the right to know what we wanted them to learn. Yes. We're gonna grade them, we're gonna put things on their transcript. Those transcripts open doors and close doors to college and careers. They have the right to know that. And it's not a compliance issue for me of just putting an objective on the board. I'm interested in Here's what we're learning today. Here's why we're learning this. Here's how you will know if you learned it. And I think those are questions that should drive the experiences our students have in the classroom. And if students don't know what they're learning, they should feel comfortable raising their hand and say, teacher, what are we learning today? If they don't know why they're learning it, they should raise their hand and say, why are we learning this? And it's not an offensive um, question to ask. They really want to see relevance in the instruction. When we look at the research of John Hattie, well-known researcher who who looks at effect sizes. He calls it teacher clarity. If you know what you want kids to learn, if you know the appropriate grade level content and you communicate it to them, kids learn more stuff. So I wish tomorrow that we would guarantee every kid the right to know what I'm learning, why I'm learning it, and how I will know that I have learned it. 
I'll make a suggestion for something to do this week around teacher collaboration. This week, I would wish that teachers would meet with their colleagues, whether it's a grade level or department level, whatever is more appropriate, to meet with their colleagues and identify together a future unit of instruction, something that's going to be happening in the near future to agree that we are going to work together and we're going to try out some new things in this upcoming unit. Identify what that unit is, make a commitment to one another this week that you're going to try at least one or two new approaches in an upcoming unit. And then this month, I was thinking about this, what do I want people to do? And I wish we could change our assignments so they were more inspirational for students. I think we have to have adolescents be touched by the curriculum they experience. That not everyone at the same moment <clears throat> needs to do a writing prompt. Not everyone needs to do a presentation. But maybe we could open that door a little bit and say, we've had this experience in class for this week. What are you inspired to do? And maybe some students want to have a debate. And other students want to have a Socratic seminar. And some students want to write something. Maybe we could open that up. Now, that would require we understand what success looks like. We'd have to be really clear about our success criteria. If you make a presentation, here's a good presentation, here's a great presentation. If you want to engage in a debate, here's a good debate, here's a great debate. And then let students be inspired. Let them realize that the curriculum is there for a reason. It's so that they can act on the world. It's not just so they can pass a test at the end of the unit or the end of the school year. It's so they can do something. They increase their agency, they develop their identity. We have to turn some of that choice over to our students so they take action on the world. Well, again, CNUSD EdChat was definitely thrilled to sit and chat with you both today. And I guess now it's time to eat lunch. Um, it was great to see you all. And, and for those of you who didn't get to attend, Kate, it was a great conference. We're sitting in a little side room while the people prepare the buffet. And thanks for joining us on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Doug and Nancy for sharing some classroom strategies with us. I really liked the vocabulary activity that he paired with the classroom video. I just It's just not a great way to ensure the students are engaged, but also a way to foster those necessary collaborative conversations using the specific academic vocabulary found throughout the video. And Nancy Fry and Doug are the authors of several books available for purchase from Corwin Press. I recommend text-dependent questions, pathways to close and critical reading and rigorous reading as we have used those to guide our own professional development offerings here at CNUSD. We thank you so much for joining us on our very first episode of CNUSD EdChat. Tomorrow and every day, I'll be sure to make sure my students know what they are learning and why. Absolutely. Want to hear more? We couldn't fit all of the wonderful things that Nancy and Doug had to say in our first episode, so we have a bonus episode for you. Doug and Nancy talk about text-dependent questions. Mm -hmm. If you enjoyed our conversation with Fisher and Fry, please subscribe to this podcast and share this episode with friends and colleagues. You can also find pictures, links to book recommendations, including their newest book, Visible Learning for Literacy, included in our show notes. This episode was produced by Kate Jackson, Anne-Marie Cortez, and myself, Ivy Yule Eldridge. It was edited by Ken Pucci, and we want to send out a special thanks to Ray Waller. If you would like to comment on their podcast, go to cnusd.com. 
k12.ca.us slash edchat. And be sure to follow them on Twitter at CNUSD edchat to let them know the topics you are interested in.